obviously the best deal is always a wholesale deal and a home run wholesale deal. Those are the, I can't say the easiest, but the most entertaining because they uh, lift your bank account really quickly. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, guys, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate. From Los Angeles, I'm Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. So you already know that each week we bring you cracking investing insight and information from our incredible guests. And the reason is to educate. We help you start successfully investing in the US and this week is no different. So we have a cracking episode for you today. So let's get into the today's show. Guys, are you having a hard time finding and sourcing great single family cash flowing properties? I bet you're finding it hard to locate a good cash flowing deal in your local market, right? Well, on this show, we are all about successful investing and successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets with the right team. Here at Investing in the US podcast, we have joined forces with that right team, which is Narada Real Estate. The team at Narada Real Estate specializes in finding great cash flowing single family properties across different markets within the United States. Check out naradarealestate.com to find out more. That is N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. Chatting with Louise Carrera about the different ways to structure a deal with your investors. G'day, Louise. Welcome to the show. Hey, Reed. How's everything? Thank you for having me on the show. Mate, everything is going well on this fine Saturday morning. But guys, a little bit more about Louise's background. He's another successful international investor that now calls the US home. He is originally from Spain, and he knows all too well that as an immigrant, work ethic is everything. Luis has a background in civil engineering, so I know that he has that work ethic mind to put in the long hours to achieve his success. Luis has left the engineering profession and is now in real estate full-time, and to date, he's completed over 250 real estate transactions and is a partner in Innovative Property Group and Capital Match. But before we dive into all the nuts and bolts of today's show, Luis, can you please tell us something that most people might not know about you unrelated to being a successful real estate entrepreneur? Sure. I mean, I love uh, football and for all you European fanatics, not American football. I still enjoy that quite, quite, quite a bit. But uh, soccer, I love soccer. I grew up playing soccer, came to this country playing soccer. And, uh, and now in my local market in the Raleigh-Durham area, where I run a wholesale business with Judson Smith, it's really hard to find soccer events. But hey, I managed to do it and uh, it's fun. It keeps me happier in that area. Fantastic. So you, did you say you came to the United States for to play soccer, like professionally or something like that? No, no. Obviously, the economies of uh, European countries fluctuate vastly. So our family came due to the fact that Spain wasn't in a good uh, place at the time. So, Lewis, with that being said, do you want to uh, give us a little bit more about your background, where you've come from, and what motivated you to start investing in real estate? Because, you know, everyone has a why factor. Everyone has a journey. And, and really understanding that journey is key to you know people's success because you have a driving factor of why you want to start achieving you know financial freedom through real estate. So do you want to talk, tell, uh, talk to us a little bit more about how you got to this point? 
Sure, I'll be glad to share my story really quickly with you. So basically, coming to this country and uh, let's just say focusing with uh, parents that are pretty much in line with the mentality of go to college, well, go to school, get good grades, go to college, get good grades, get a safe job, and then, uh, you know, save up enough to retire at 65, 70, whatever it is, and and just focus on that. Well, I didn't like that. Ever since I was young, I always aspired to more. I guess it was uh, just one of my family's genes, like a hidden gene that I possessed from my family compared to my brothers and my parents that I got some of my grandparents and great-grandparents' uh, entrepreneurship mentality. So thank God for that because uh, it pushed me to to work even harder and strive to get out of the, let's just say, marketplace or the workforce due to the fact that I saw uh, what was really going on. So basically, I went to college, started at Rutgers, and then I went to New Jersey Institute of Technology, got a civil engineering degree, a bachelor's and a master's, started working for some contractors. And the beautiful thing about what I wanted to do, I didn't want to sit behind the computer. I wanted to be out in the field. So I chose like construction management and I ended up with Turner Construction. At Turner Construction, I was able to be a part of uh, great construction projects. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to build skyscrapers. So I was part of Yankee Stadium for a bit. Let's see, what else? Memorial Sloan Kettering, the U.S. Post Office, a hotel in uh, Times Square, which was the Crown Plaza Hotel. So I did quite a few projects with them until the economy collapsed. And granted, that was my, my first shock experience of getting to know the, that you're not in a safe environment anymore when you're in part of the workforce. Uh, your income could be reduced to zero in a week span. So I was working for Turner. I was doing, it would take 80 hour weeks because they cut so many people during that time that I needed to cover other projects. So I remember when I got laid off, they didn't even have a clue where I was working at. So <laughs> it was, yeah, it was incredible. That so. is incredible story. I just want to just recap a little bit because you and I, we come from the same, essentially the same stable. I, I'm also a civil engineer. I had the very similar um, issues, not in terms of being laid off, but in terms of that something, you know, that inner feeling that I wasn't, you know, achieving what I thought I could achieve. I was sort of like this, this athlete that was on the bench and I, I wanted to take control of my life. So I love hearing other people's stories and particularly that you are a civil engineer. So that's, that's, that's fantastic. And I do know who Turner is. Um, I worked as a, as a structural engineer in New York City, uh, for a period of time, and I worked not with Turner, but um, on some on some con- with some contractors on the Yankees Stadium. So we probably maybe have crossed paths <laughs> un- unknowingly. <laughs> it was a big project, so there was a lot of people there. Maybe we did, maybe we didn't. But it, it's it was great to be a part of those projects. I got the feel of how to manage large scale projects such as that, and it was very interesting. Battle with the unions, which was great, but. But um, I loved it. Um, I, don't get me wrong. I love doing that. However, what I didn't love was the long hours, the stress, and the pressure put on you. Because uh, obviously, after the economy collapsed, everybody was on a tighter budget, so to speak. And uh, 
and and obviously after I left, I got laid off from Turner. I went to, well, before I found another job, I dabbled in sales, like insurance sales, and I knew I had a drive for something more. I just didn't quite find it yet, and I stumbled into real estate with wholesaling and uh, buy and hold, and then and then obviously I still listen to my parents. Being an immigrant, you you pretty much respect your parents throughout your life. It's it's pretty much a different mentality than than over here. So I went off to get another job again, 10 to 14 hour days, but I still wanted to be successful. So on the side, I still added another six to let's just say eight hours a day on real estate. So sleeping three to four hours daily wasn't fun for several years until finally I I put in my resignation. That's awesome, mate. You have a really incredible story and just something that I'm sure a lot of my listeners can can you know relate to. They're all people sit in their day in their their day jobs working those twelve to fourteen hour days. And I think the biggest key to just just taking a little bit away from what you just said was that you have to go home and then push yourself again to achieve financial freedom or whatever it might be in any in any business you know it doesn't just happen and if you don't put in those hours those additional hours at late at night or over on the weekends you're not going to you're not going to get to where you are now which is you know successfully investing full time in real estate so so well done um exactly congratulations congratulations i guess because you know you've got to a point where you could escape the rat race and now pursue some you've taken control of your life and i think that's very very important so, mate, with that being said, let's get started in, in t- about today's topic. And, you know, to better understand the different ways to structure a deal that benefits the investor, uh, the seller, and, of course, you as the entrepreneur. And I know you have a lot of experience with all different types of deal structuring, from wholesaling properties to syndicating large multifamily deals. So can you start at the beginning and walk us through the most common way you like to structure deals right now in your, day, in, in your career and explain the benefits that for everyone involved? Sure. I mean, I could, I'll touch base starting with the local business, which is a wholesaling business over here in the North Carolina area. It's, I still have some of it in Jersey with some marketing, but uh, most of it now is uh, focused on the Raleigh Durham market. And Judson and I were pretty much killing it lately. I think I actually got Judson over the hump of wholesaling because he was more of a flipping guy. So I'm happy about that. It's been a great successful relationship there and i'm very happy to have found him well his strengths uh overcome my weaknesses and vice versa so i'm very excited about that due to the fact that english isn't my strongest language so i sometimes confide in him like judson finish negotiating with this guy because because i can't word a couple things properly if you know what i mean right so right 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 so tell us a little bit more about that this wholesaling business because a lot of people out there who start in real estate, they start with wholesaling or they think they can start with wholesaling, but it takes a lot of work. And just walk us through some of the deal structures that you're doing with your wholesaling business right now. Sure. For Well, obviously the best deal is always a wholesale deal and a home run wholesale deal. Uh, those are the, the, I can't say the easiest, but the most entertaining because they, they uh, lift your bank account really quickly. However, I must stress that the most important thing about wholesaling and real estate investing in general is just to market. You have to continually market to a list or through Google or whatever means you have to 
produce leads. I mean, if you have zero marketing dollars, I mean, get some, get 20 bucks and go to a local sign shop and get 10 signs and write on them. I mean, telling you right now, uh, we have a lot of bird, well, several bird dogs that they're financially not able to purchase any letters, send out any direct mail. So we teach them, go buy signs, buy 10 signs, right? We buy houses, put your number on it, well, or Google voice number on it, put it on Friday nights out in a high traffic area, take them out on Sunday, rinse and repeat every weekend. You could use the same 10 signs for like a month or two months before you really have to consider something else. And, and the more, the better. So getting into deal structure, obviously wholesale deal where you, where the owner approves or signs on the dotted line where you get 70% of ARV minus repair, minus a wholesale fee, then that's a home run for us. Obviously there's some cases where you have to be more creative just because the owner or the term set on the existing deal is not the most, uh, it doesn't fit on a wholesale structure, such as lease options and subject twos. I mean, we do a lot of subject twos because the market has shifted a bit due to the fact that a lot of people are, don't have much equity in their homes. So from all the de deal flow we have, about 40% of them are subject twos. You have to target that. If not, you're missing out on I can't say easier money, but you're missing out on a good chunk of change that will help you out down the road. Right. Okay. So tell, talk to us a little bit about that subject too, because for some for some listeners out there, they might not know what subject two means. So you have you 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 bird dog. You've got you've got a seller who's really motivated to sell their property. They call you up and say, "Hey, Louise, I've got this property." You then start asking questions, and then how do you get to a subject two, and what does that mean? Well, subject to the definition is uh, an agreement for sale subject to the existing mortgage or existing terms set out by you and the owner. Uh, so most of the time, it's usually because they have a mortgage in place and the wholesale fees below that mortgage amount. So let's just say the mortgage is at 70K, but the wholesale fee would be at 50. So that's not going to work. So you got to be creative. And subject to is the easiest way to be creative. I agree a lot of attorneys say balk at that because of the do on sale clause. But if you do it right, if you do a wrap, and if you work with investors like we have, I mean, they typically get out of the deal within six to 12 months. So it shouldn't be much of a problem. But I've never had an issue with banks calling the note. So I know the attorneys have to represent them properly. And I'm not an attorney, but from my experience, they'll always say that it's not a good idea due to the fact that there's plenty of clauses in those original contracts. But hey, it works, and it's another creative way to help out an, an owner. So we just structured it with a simple agreement for sale. Instead of worrying the amount, such as a wholesale fee, we'll just put a owner agrees to convey titles subject to an exact exact wrap of the existing note or a note predetermined by you just in case he's free and clear and he doesn't want to sell it for market value but he's cool with selling it on terms then you create a note with the attorney and it just gets assigned to the end buyer so 
it's fun. It's fun. I mean, let's just say for every 20 leads you get, one of them is a wholesale deal. Well, you got four to seven that are subject twos. I mean, that's a lot of cash in the bank that you could acquire in a month-to-month basis if if you focus on some type of creative, uh, let's just say, deal structure. I mean, right. it's, it's key right? and it's fun. <laughs> I love that you say it's key and it's fun because I – to love creative financing and if you can if you don't have to involve a bank and you can somehow structure a deal with your seller that is creative and everyone wins it's it's bloody fantastic <laughs> so do you want to talk a, do you want to talk a little bit more about like i'm a huge fan of seller carryback financing um and maybe some people out there don't know what that means and how can that help you in your wholesaling deal or in a flip deal or really just in any type of deal that you might come across, whether it's a multifamily or a single family flip? Oh, it's awesome. I mean, I love the seller carryback because you'll get some money at closing, depending on how you structure it. Like the way we do commercial multifamily properties, most of the time the owner gives us back some money. They'll give us back some money in, in regards to like as a credit because of certain repairs or and it's predetermined. Or if they just want to move the note quicker or go, get to closing quicker, some some of these owners might carry, let's just say, 400K for a couple of years at like 5%. They're happy to oblige to it because they know it's in their best interest to move the property. And as long as everybody's on the same page, then you work to strive, you work to get to that goal. And you... We, we typically don't always offer that at first glance because we don't want to convey that position that we cannot pay for the house, which is not true, or the apartment complex, which is not true. It's just, it's just a matter of once you have all the, you're, you're lining up all your ducks, you're like, okay, let's offer this to the owner. Maybe he's interested. And, and that's about it. Usually it's five to 10% of the, of the overall purchase price that he could carry back. And it's, a lot of times they, they agree to it because it's only 5%. It's not like right. you're asking for 80%. <laughs> so would you then have a, you know, a debt position, something like the bank coming in and providing the rest of the finance for that particular deal and they take back that small 5 to 10% seller carry? Uh, oh, yes. Finance? Yes. For the most part, the banks that we do work with allow that. So we're happy with – I mean, we try to work with most banks that provide that. And then down the road within – 12 to 24 months, we'll refinance that to a more conventional conventional and standard bank, such as, such as Wells Fargo, Bank of America, and we refinance everybody out. So, uh, so that's like in an apartment complex. Even the same thing with investors that we bring in. I mean, if they come in with 20% and they get an equity stake of 30, I mean, that's already a 10-point 10, 10 swing on them for just providing 20%. I mean... Uh, you've done commercial properties before. You know that that's a big, I can't say sales tactic, but it's 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 great to understand that you're coming in with 20% or 30% and you're hedging that against 30 to 50% of the equity. I mean, you don't really get that many places other than the real estate. Right, right. And that's that's really, really key is to understand the different ways of that you can structure it and the benefits of both, as you're saying, the investor and the deal itself. So with that seller carryback finance, can you give us like a, just a really basic example of what you've seen? So say a property's worth $500,000. If the seller carries back some financing in of 5, 10, 20% or whatever it might be, are you then able to 
you know, give them more of what they're asking for the property because they're, they're essentially becoming an investor, right? In, in the deal, they're, they're, they're providing equity um, that you can then kick the can down the road and you don't have to pay them to what, you know, maybe it's 12 months, 24 oh, yeah. months. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and, and just give me an example of rough numbers for people out there who might be listening and not really understanding the, the exact science behind it? Sure. I mean, there's two different ways to look at it. One, there's ways it's for the smaller properties. So for the single to, let's just say, 12-unit properties, it's a lot easier to give back the owner a little bit more than what they're looking for. But let's just say, for example, we're doing a joint venture with an owner just because the property is just worth too much, that they know that it's worth too much. So in this case, we'll be doing uh, the joint venture calls for them to hold the note in good standing and and we just bring in the funds to do the construction and then we sell it down the road at 50% profit split. But it's about a rate of ROI of about 60%. So why wouldn't somebody do that? If you know what I mean? Like a lot of people, they, they back away from something like that. I mean, that's so creative and easy to do and to offer when the owners say no to wholesale, no to subject to, all right, let's do a joint venture. What's a joint venture? Well, we'll split the, the profits at the end and we'll just do the entire construction while you hold the note. Does that sound fair enough? Yes. Well, then let's pursue it. All you need is a agreement between the two of you, which is notarized and then filed with the county if need be. Interesting. Interesting. That's, and that's really, really uh, fantastic in terms of creating that. You just created value there for not only the seller, but you created value for yourself. So does, in that scenario, does that, uh, does the original bank still stand in first position and or do you just target people who have uh, free and clear properties? Well, for the most part, because, well, that's just a joint venture. A joint venture is like a side agreement with the owners. So the bank always has first position. The joint venture is just, a, it's not an agreement for sale. It's really much just the project that you're striving to sell that property down the road. And that's that's what I try to tell people. I'm like, if you do a joint venture, it is not an agreement for sale. It's just an agreement. You're going to do this project. And then once it sells, then you split the pro- proceeds. So there's no seller carry back. However, if you do another project like a single family home, and let's just say uh, it's 400K, the owner wants 200K. So you could do the numbers. Let's just say 200K is what the owner wants, but it needs a 150K worth of work, for example. So you're at 350, right? I mean, if you do the numbers correctly, that's not a good wholesale fit. But if you structure it in a way where like, look, we'll give you, could you carry back, we'll give you a deposit of 20 grand. You carry the note for in first position or depending, let's just say it's free and clear. So we'll do an agreement for sale where we'll provide a deposit of 20 grand subject to a note created by the owner and it could be at terms like okay we have 24 months to complete this project and instead of giving him 200k we could give him 240 for example i understand what you're trying to get at because what you're essentially doing there is they become the bank so to speak right exactly and that you you're providing that down payment and then they are saying well thank you for that down payment. I'm going to, I, I now become the bank. I'm, I'm the owner of this property. I own it free and clear. You can pay me for the remaining cost of it. So if they want it, if it's 400,000, they want 400,000 for it. You put 20% down 
um, then they take the, what's called the note or the piece of paper saying that you're going to have a loan on this property and you're going to pay me at a certain interest rate over the next whatever period of time you, you negotiate. It might be 12 exactly. months. It might be 24 months. And, and, then, and then for doing that and allowing you to get into the property and fix it up, you might then have a property worth $700,000. And so you can then say to the seller, well, maybe I can give you some on the back end as well, right? You could, you could offer them, well, if we sell it at a profit, and you can have oh, correct. You know, 10% on the back end. So really, at the end of the day, they're getting interest from the loan. They're getting more than $400,000 because of just of the interest payments, and they're getting a back end kicker. So in, you know, it might work out that they might end up getting four fifty dollars or even five hundred dollars depending on the profits uh, and how you structure it and how juicy the deal is. Uh, and, exactly. that's a win- and that's a win-win situation for everyone involved, right? Yes, I agree. And the beautiful thing about the owner finance structures is you have to, the numbers change a bit. Instead of calculating the, the overall ROI based on a whole, like if you're just going to flip it with the entire, you paid 400K, you put 150 and you're going to get 700K out of it. Well, you change it a bit. Well, now you only put 20K down. You have these carrying costs for a certain amount of time. Let's just say 24 months. So you're 40, you're 40 K down plus 24 months at a thousand dollars, for example, right? That's 24 grand, right? So you're in it for 64 plus 150. That's uh, what is it? One, tw- one, 114. So you're at 114. You sell a house at 700 K and you're in it 114 plus 400 K. What is that? 515. And you still give them a split? Well, let's just say your split is, uh, I don't know, 90K. 90K over 115, that's that's a great rate of return. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I love how you broke it down just then. That's exactly right because you want to look at your ROI of what cash you have in the deal, right? And that is, you're not you're not throwing $400,000 into the deal. You're only putting in, as you said, the deposit and maybe it's the cash for the construction loan. And you might even be able to borrow that if you get a hard money lender involved. It all depends on how you structure that deal. But again, it goes back to you know, making sure you understand what your ROI is on your cash, not necessarily the entire deal, exactly. so to speak. You have to just take a snapshot of where your cash is allocated. So if it's 400K and you're all in it, and, and you get a return of 700k that's still a great roi as well but it, but in a let's just say in a microscope or in a snapshot you're only putting in let's just say i don't know 200k and you're getting back 100k i mean that's that's a great roi as well 50% off 200k that you put in how awesome is that the what it really goes down to is leverage, right? And you're leveraging, uh, being getting, as I said, it's cre- the word creative. You're getting creative because you don't, you have no bank involved in that scenario that you just spoke about. You have a, you have a seller who has a motivation to either sell the property or he needs 200K to pay off his existing mortgage or whatever he might need it for. But if you don't ask those questions, and that's another topic we could talk about, you know, a whole episode on, on how to, how to ask those questions to a seller. But if you don't pose those sort of scenarios to the seller, then you can't get the, the sort of the, the brain juice is flowing and, and, and really understanding how we can all benefit from this deal. You're helping the seller. He's, he, he's getting what he needs. You're getting what you need because you're the investor and you're making good money. And you're not having to involve a bank, which is it also helps you because you know getting a bank involved, it's slow, it's cumbersome. They you know check your credit and all that sort of stuff. And exactly. I just I just love it. You know, you can tell in my voice that I'm really passionate about it, but it's because of the different ways you can, you know, I like to call it skin a cat because 
your your options are endless if you know how to do the right thing and you're benefiting everyone involved. So fantastic, mate. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit more about how you're structuring your deals with your investors on your larger projects? Like we talked a little bit about uh, single families here in in sort of very basic scenarios. How are you doing it? If I'm an investor and I come to you, Luis, and say, hey, mate, I've got 100 grand, how how can we structure a multifamily deal? How are you structuring it these days? Sure. I mean, uh, for the most part, we have a team and uh, I'm in charge of capital well, capital and raising capital for that team along with Judson. So it depends on the own, uh, on the investor needs. I mean, we do a lot of cold calls and I like calling a lot of, let's just say hard money guys, because when it comes to bigger projects, they have a lot of them do not do bigger projects just because they're unaware and unsure. And uh, we're there to try to educate these people in regards to, look, you could increase your money extremely quickly in a matter of 24 months, even if you're not getting the numbers you're used to as a hard money lender. And as a bigger scale, I mean, instead of doing one, uh, I mean, one multifamily project for you is equal to probably 20 small multifamily deals if they were to, if you were to look at it closer. So we try to explain to them, like, if you want to move quicker, come with us and we'll help you move quicker. The way we structure with investors is pretty interesting. We try to get their needs first. Like after we explain it to them and we see that their motivation has peaked, we ask them, so in a project that, like this size, let's just say we're trying to raise a million dollars, what would you like to get out of it? I mean, it's this is just a growing relationship that we want to for you investor and for us to be a part of for a long time. And how do we both benefit from this? What are your needs? And sometimes they'll tell you straight out, look, as long as I get 10% of my money in a big project like this, and I could get my money back within, I don't know, 12 to 24 months, I'll be happy. And then once you start getting these feelers out there, you start understanding how to structure this deal. Well, okay, great. So how about this? Would it be more entertaining for you to be an equity partner with us as well? So let's just say you were to put this $1 million, that's 25% of 4 million, for example, that the deal is worth, right? So in exchange, do you want 40% of the equity? Well, how do those numbers work out? Well, those numbers work out that if once we reposition this class asset from like a C value to a B plus value, the cash flow raises. So your the NOI increases as well. In the end, we could probably give you 15%, which is much closer to his hard money figures, but it'll take a little longer. Is that fine with you? A lot of times they'll say yes. A lot of times they'll say no. Their biggest main objection is the first position need they have. Most of these hard money guys, they won't even talk to you unless you're in first position. So if you tell, if you try to, I can't say convince, but if you sell them, because you're always selling something. If you sell them on the fact that, hey, look, we have a great project. Right now it's $4 million. In 12 to 24 months, we can make it worth $7 million. Do you want to be a partner of that at 50%, for example? So obviously they have to do the due diligence. I mean, we could talk a whole episode on, on how to structure that. But very quickly, a lot of times they'll get more than 10% of their money back if they're equity partners as well. So 
if the numbers and the underwriting are correct, let's say the property is worth $4 million now. You fix it up, raise it in class, and it'll be worth, let's just say, $7 million in year two. Then after year one, let's just say months 18, we start refinancing that. So the beautiful thing about it, once we financing that, we refinance that and the appraisal comes in at that $7 million value, well, guess what, investor? You in 18 months get your money back plus interest, yet you still hold an equity position in this property. Let's move that money into another property. Or are you happy with that? Let's continue moving that money to another property and another project. Or could you tell your friends about this? You know, we, we, we try to just hit them with every angle possible in order for them to be motivated enough to continue to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very, very key what you said, that if someone, if you can convince someone to be uh, comfortable with the types of returns and their, their risk, uh, equity risk, uh, you know, that you know, in 12 to 24 months, they can get their money back through refinancing, but they can still hold an equity position in the deal. Once they've got some of their money out of the deal, then that's really, really incredible because they now essentially uh, it's sitting there, you know, cash flowing for them, and they have less capital in the deal, which is incredibly, incredibly powerful. So yeah, I, I mean, they have zero capital after let's just say after you refinance it, they have zero cash in the deal. So because everything came back to their pocket after re refinance, it's a great way of thinking bigger and uh, just waiting it out until everything fits into place. Fantastic, and it's also really key that what you just said, and you hit briefly on that. You know, you then have word of mouth of people to other that investor telling his friends and family and other investors, and that then grows your business. So it's sort of this whole win-win-win. Everyone's winning. You're helping the seller with some, maybe some seller carryback financing. You're getting an investor involved. He's getting great returns, and you're also you know helping grow your business because there's great word of mouth, and that's just that's the whole point of understanding how to structure a deal properly so everyone involved wins and you can make money together. That's that's really, really key, and I just love talking about this type of type of stuff because it really it motivates me to get up in the morning and you know find that next cracking deal, as I like to say. So fantastic! Exactly, it, it is fantastic. I mean, we love our local business, uh, but it's fun to do the commercial multifamily side as well. I mean, it just just thinking about it makes my mind spin because there's so many factors into play that once you have like everything coming together and like in an emerging market that you know that everything's growing you jump in it at the right time with the right investors you know that let's just say you you appraise your money or your piece into two million dollars let's just say in 24 months you have an appreciation of two million dollars i mean you could take that two million dollars 1031 it into another bigger property in another emerging market and do the same thing, rinse and repeat, and probably grow your money in within five years of $2 million to maybe six or seven before taxes, obviously. Right, 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 right. Now that, and that's very, very powerful. And, and one of the things that I've talked talk about on the show a lot is that the, the power of the 1031 exchange here in the United States, which isn't very common a, a, around the rest of the world, which is you know, a fantastic way to grow your wealth, to scale your business, and really to hit that financial freedom a lot sooner. So awesome stuff, mate. You know, this show is all about helping international investors break into the US market. Luis, are you working with any international groups now or any international investors buying US real estate? Yes, uh, we are. We work, we work with a couple of 
because we have a a growing network in our local area, uh, a lot of private guys, private money guys for these single family homes that we work with are, let's just say, uh, Chinese and they ha or, well, or from foreign and they have connections and uh, foreign money. So once you build that relationship, it's a relationships game, really. The marketing and relationships. The better relationships that ha you have, the more trustworthy you become. The more you become the face of real estate of a certain area or of a certain um, uh, niche market like commercial properties. So because our local business is doing so well, these people are more open to hearing what we have to say. And the private money guys that, let me circle back. These hard money guys that we kind of converted into private money guys are perfect, especially most of them are from China. And they have all this business in China that it's, it's incredible that you're like, oh, this guy doesn't seem like um, he's that valuable. But behind him, he has a whole network of industries in China or wherever they're from that have millions of dollars ready and waiting to be invested in this country. And, and as long as once we get to know them and build rapport and we find, and we figure that out and they're open to working with us, it, the floodgates may and could open. It's, it's incredible when there's so much untapped resources, all you have to do is just ask and keep on asking the questions. Like, like this one private, uh, this one, um, hard money lender. I mean, I think I asked him like eight times. He said no to me for like, Two months until he's like, all right, what do you have? Because I'm tired of you calling me. And because every time I see him, I'm like, hey, hey, you should think bigger, man. And and I just, uh, you know, uh, uh, plant the little seed in his head. Think bigger. Apartment complexes. Come on, man. It's this is nothing. Well, you got to do 400 of these to get, you know, and you just do one deal with us. And there we go. You, you did 400 single family homes. He's like, what? What are you talking about? Leave me alone. And then the next time I'm like, come on, just keep on thinking bigger. Come on, Pete, just let's do it. You know, and it, it's just funny. You just have to continually be in front of them. And, and, and that's the main thing about this. Like a lot of these people, they won't at first, uh, like in regards to marketing, what's the main goal of marketing? You got to do at least seven to eight touches to get the most sales, right? Well, it's the same thing with prospecting. You have to do seven touches or more to actually probably get a conversation. And that's why it's important to get out there, meet with attorneys, especially in your local market. I mean, put it in your calendar. Meet this attorney on Tuesdays, every Tuesday for the next seven weeks and just do it. Because I know on week seven, he's been saying six no's for the past six weeks, but then on week seven, he's like, all right, what do you have? How could, how could you help me? Because I've been seeing you quite a little, quite too much. And, and now your face is familiar and I trust you more. It's just subconsciously, I believe it's just a yeah, psychological game for the most part. And uh, I learned it through marketing, marketing. Once you learn that you have to touch a lot of people, a lot of times to get the most deals, you could, you could, Take that and use it in prospecting. Yes, it sucks. You know how many no's I get? I get about, I don't know, 98% of my day is all no. 2% is yes. So just expect it. 
the, the, the more you do it, the more you get in front of people, the easier it becomes. So you just say, okay, oh, you're, you're not interested? Oh, I guess you don't want to make money. Goodbye. And then they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, we do want to make money. What are you talking about? Oh, then why are you blowing me off? Oh, well, you know, I don't really know you. Okay, how about this? Let's have lunch next week or let's get a coffee next week. And you, you just break the ace like that. So. Yeah. That's great. I, I, you've covered some incredible topics, not from, from just from deal structuring, but also how you're getting your deals, you know, how you're finding your investors, because I think that's just such a key part. And, and what you said is very, very true. And I'm a huge proponent of it. And that's getting in front of people. The bigger your network is, uh, the bigger you reach, the more deals you get done. And to, to go back to what you're saying about building credibility, it doesn't just happen after one or even two meetings. It might take, as you said, you know, a meeting once a week for, for two months until someone gets sick and tired of you. Uh, they're like, okay, what do you got to invest in? Uh, you know, that's, and that's really, really key. And, and being a key person of influence in your local market, which it sounds like you guys are, and you're dealing with everyone from attorneys to uh, I'm sure doctors and surgeons and people who want that, uh, that really good return, but may not have the access to those deals like you guys do, because you know, you're actively out there doing, you know, doing it day in, day out. So so, so, so well done, mate. You know, you, you're doing some great stuff by the sounds of it. And I'm really, I was really excited to have you on the show today. Well, um, thank you. <laughs> but mate, I know with all your experience and expertise in deal structuring, I know you're primed to give me your top five investing tips for the United States. You ready to get into it? Sure. So what's the most successful habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Uh, I do a lot of... I think it's a mix of two things, goal setting and um, to because it focuses you and just getting just action and making sure you fill your calendar with, with things that could generate something in the future, not these tasks. I guess also outsourcing, outsource your tasks that don't produce any income, like marketing, like pay a virtual assistant or an assistant to market your stuff on a week to week basis instead of you sitting in front of a computer for three hours when you could be actually making phone calls or getting in front of people. I completely agree. I think that's very, very important. Outsourcing, setting goals, and making sure your calendar is full because I think you can judge a person on how productive they are if, they, if you look at their calendar. If the calendar is not full of meetings and things on the you know coming up on the horizon, then maybe they're not planning as well as they could do so and the calendar is important like my calendar a lot of times it's empty because we've we've automated a lot of things in our business so the way i fill it up is like visit six attorneys okay the night before i'll i'll map out the attorneys to visit even if i never did okay call five attorneys five cpas five private money guys and uh, five local investors for example just put it on your calendar and do it. <laughs> it's it's pretty easy to fill a calendar with important tasks. Like if you're like, like our business is automated when it comes to wholesaling. I mean, we still have to answer a lot of calls in regards to once we get the very hot deals. But but for the most part, a lot of things are outsourced. But when we do like raise capital, I mean, it's very easy to fill a cal- uh, fill white space in a calendar. Just focus your efforts on prospecting. Completely agree. Completely agree. Uh, Lewis, I know you would have an influential tool in your business. What is it and how is it so influential? 
Influential tool in my business. Let's see the phone. The phone is extremely important in my business. Get unlimited minutes because the bills do get high if you don't have unlimited minutes. <laughs> I completely agree with you, mate. I think that is a very, very influential tool. And you know, you're not the only person who said their mobile phone. I think a lot of people who come on this show definitely talk about the value of having a mobile phone and you know, getting on the on the call to someone, to an investor, to a seller, to a buyer, anyone, you know, you just got to make that connection and make that um, that next step towards, you know, your goals and, and closing that next deal. So fantastic. Uh, what's yes. the most exciting project you're working on right now? Well, we have a redevelopment project, Empty Land, that we're working on. It's another joint venture. We're trying to work with the owners of the land. Obviously, when you market a lot, you find a lot of deals, and a lot of different types of deals. So... We have a great project that we're still in the infancy of it, but it seems that it could be a mixed-use commercial project. Fantastic. That's awesome. I would love to see more details of that because I have a lot of experience in redeveloping land. So, uh, yeah, shoot it my way if you, if you want any advice, but that's, uh, that's, that's for offline sure. conversation. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Mate, who's the most influential person in your career? Well, career... I got. I have two. Career and personally, I guess career-wise, I mean, I've read a lot of books. I guess to really start it out, I think the book that kind of changed it all for me was uh, Donald Trump's, uh, I, think, I forgot the title right now, but I think it's uh, Kick-Ass or something like that. That actually focused my efforts into real estate. And then there's a lot of other influential people such as like uh, lately has been Grant Cardone. I don't know if you heard of him, but but he's the one with that 10X book. That's another game changer right there. I mean, focus and just set high expectations of yourself and commit to something and figure it out later. I mean, that's what I've been doing. And it's been uh, paying off in uh, in a massive amount, in a massive way. Uh, these past couple of, uh, I can't say years, but yeah, these past couple of years. And uh, personally, my uh, mother, she is oof, like one of the hardest women you can meet. I mean, my girlfriend right now, she gives me looks, but they don't even scare me just because I've been so traumatized by my mom. But she installed this type of work ethic in me that it's, I mean, I'm like, I can't say I'm, I was always a responsible one of my brothers. Like, I have to do it. If not, nothing, nobody else could do it. Let him figure it out. She put every emphasis that she created me as a leader. Even though her mindset was more like you have to get a safe job, she put in me the work ethic. Like a lot of things, work ethic is really much your internal drive. However, you you still need somebody to help you with that growing up. And that was my mother. Fantastic. Fantastic. Family is very, very influential in, in my career as well and, and a lot of people's career, I think. And the, the, people, the person that you are today and the way that you've got to being an entrepreneur, uh, to being, as you say, work ethic, hard, uh, hard worker, driven, all those things that come that are involved with starting a business, you know, it all comes down to your conditioning and, you know, it's awesome that your mom has been such a played, uh, such a major role in your life. So, so well done, mate. Um, my last question for you is where can people reach you to continue the conversation? Sure. I mean, I could be reached by telephone mm -hmm. 
almost at any hour, any time, really, till I get, you know, complaints from uh, my girlfriend, Elisa. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I can be reached at 973-902-7203. And uh, email, I, I could be reached at innovativeholding at gmail.com. But I could also be found on Facebook and all these social media platforms. Fantastic, mate. Well, we're going to have all those in the show notes for people to follow up with you because I'm sure there's going to be a couple of people emailing you in regards to the, all the deal structuring that you've talked about on today's show. So, mate, you certainly have provided know your stuff when it comes to deal structuring and you've provided us all with some great insight into better understanding how to structure a deal properly so that everyone wins. Thank you so much for dropping in and chatting with us. Have a great rest of your week and we'll catch up soon. Thank you, Reed, for having me. Well, there you have it, a great insight into understanding the different ways to structure your deal. One of the keys to creating long-term wealth is deal structuring, and everyone has to understand this aspect when successfully investing in real estate. Now, make sure you check out all the show notes for a summary of today's conversation with Luis. Uh, as I mentioned, all the links will be up on my website at rsmpropertygroup.com. Just click on the podcast tab. Whilst you're there, click on uh, sign up for a newsletter and see what deals we are working on right now. We also have a, a local wine and cheese event in downtown Los Angeles. For, so for anyone out there listening uh, who is interested to meeting like-minded real estate entrepreneurs and business people, um, you know, shoot me an email and I can tell you when our next event is coming up. Thanks for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your real estate investing knowledge as that's what we're all about here on this show, continuing to grow your financial IQ. If you want to follow me on Facebook and Twitter, you can search my name, which is Reed Goosens or RSM Property Group. And if you're in a giving mood and you want to give back to this show, then jump on uh, jump on iTunes and give the show a five-star review. I really would appreciate it as it helps us grow our community of international listeners eager to invest in the United States. We're going to do this all again next week. So take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing. Thank you.